This is an AMI podcast. Hi, I'm Fern Dullum, and welcome to Into You, the podcast where we put love under the microscope, shedding light on the do's, don'ts, and nightmare scenarios we find ourselves in while flirting with romance. The relationship you have with your parents very strongly influences how you'll have relationships with other people as an adult. I guess it just gets more and more, like you say, progressively a bit creepy. We all come at dating from a slightly different angle, but we are often faced with very similar situations to shape up to. Okay, this is a little too much close, but I don't know how to express that. I don't know how to express that I need some space. So I'm going to find a way to make you go away. Dating can uncover things about ourselves we never knew before. So without further ado, let's get into you. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. the incredibly wise choice of listening to Into You. You are clever. Today, we're delving into the psychological depth of the relationship world as we ask, what is your template for love? You may have heard of attachment theory, a term that is becoming ever more widely discussed. And I was keen for us to get our facts straight on this juicy subject and speak to someone who is fully in the know. So who better to ask than psychologist, author and blogger Amy Daramus, who teaches on this subject. Later, Amy explains why certain attachment styles can make first dates incredibly awkward. I had a date with this great person, except his mom came along for the entire thing. Oh, God. And how childhood memories can help you to figure out who the person sat across the table from you really is. You can look for common themes. How do they view people? How do they solve problems? How do they have relationships? But first, I wanted to start with the basics and asked Amy what attachment theory actually is. Attachment theory is a pretty well evidence-based theory that teaches us that the way we have relationships is learned, usually from the family that we grow up with. Basically, there are kind of five universal ways that people learn to have attachments to have relationships. The relationship you have with your parents very strongly influences how you'll have relationships with other people as an adult. Can you define each attachment style? What are they and what would they look like in real life? The style that you're aiming for is called a secure attachment. And these are going to vary a little bit by culture, just as different cultures define families differently. But a secure attachment is one where you have a loving, trusting relationship with the family that brought you up. But at an age-appropriate level, it is emotionally safe for you to have relationships outside of the family, to have a life outside your family. In other words, as much as you love your family and are loved by them, they're going to let you grow up when it's time. You don't have to worry that your relationship with your family is going to be threatened by that emotionally or that you're ever going to be made to choose. In real life, that would just look like a family that welcomes a child's friends into the family, later on welcomes boyfriends, girlfriends, and other romantic partners. They are comfortable with their child developing interests outside of that family, maybe being a little bit different from that family. As children grow, a big part of development is developing different opinions from your family. And that can cause friction, but there has to be this core of I can disagree, we can have arguments, but 
beneath that, I am confident that I'm loved and wanted and welcomed by my family. No family is flawlessly securely attached. There's always going to be a few glitches along the way. So some of the more problematic attachment styles are the anxious avoidant. This is a family where it's just sort of emotionally cold. The family is competent. The child is fed, clothed. They have everything they need on a practical level, but there's no love. Or there's a feeling of love, but nobody knows how to express it. It's just very kind of emotionally stiff, where the parents are kind of like, okay, once our job is done, it's done. I feed you, I clothe you, I work all day to earn all this money that you constantly need. And other than that, in my spare time, I kind of don't want to be bothered with you. And I especially don't want to be bothered emotionally. So nobody's really being necessarily abusive or neglectful. It's just, you know what, parenting is a job and I've clocked out. If you're comfortable with it, people with avoidance styles actually can make pretty good partners because they tend to show love as if it was a task list. What is the to-do list of love? Oh, you need a bookcase put together? You like this for dinner? I can make that. So they can actually be very supportive in a practical way. Just get used to the fact that you're not going to hear I love you a lot. The third style is anxious ambivalent. And this is that Katy Perry song, hot and cold. You're in, you're out, you're up, you're down. It's all over the place. So this is somebody who sometimes genuinely gets very attached to you at the beginning. It's close, it's sexy, it's exciting, but all of a sudden they're going to ghost you or they're going to pick an argument or they're going to cheat on you. And there is this constant pattern of trying to get close to somebody, but once you get close, you panic okay, this is a little too much close, but I don't know how to express that. I don't know how to express that I need some space. So I'm going to find a way to make you go away or I'm going to go away. But then you panic because you've lost them. So first you panicked because it was getting too close and you didn't know what to do with the emotions. Then you succeed in getting some distance, but then you panic because you didn't actually mean them to go that far away. Now you've got to get back in there and try to win them back. And there can be this, you know, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off kind of pattern. It sounds like it would be really hard to please that person. They're kind of never happy with whatever situation they're in. Basically, there's a deep craving for connection and emotion, but once they get it, they don't know what to do with it. It's a little bit like, okay, I've always dreamed of having a baby dinosaur as a pet, but now it's a T-Rex and what do I do with this? The next is the disorganized style. And this is where the parent-child bond is flipped. For whatever reason, it can be physical or mental illness. It can just be somebody who was never ready to parent. You see this a lot in families where there's a lot of addiction. But at a very, very young age, the child has to be the responsible one in the family. For some reason, that parent is not ready to parent or not able to parent right then. So you get, you know, even five and six-year-old children trying to take care of their parents, trying to take care of their siblings, trying to get the housework done, trying to meet their own emotional needs Mm -hmm. at that young age and not to have any emotional needs because their emotional needs are a burden on people who don't know what to do with that. And that is really damaging to that child because, you know, when you're little, you need somebody to protect you. You need to know that you're safe. Some adult is going to stand up for you if you need it, take care of your needs, make sure you have everything you need. You're in this world where nobody is in charge, anything can happen, and there's nobody to protect you. In adult relationships, they often go one of two ways. Sometimes they become the parent in their adult romantic relationships or even friendships without ever meaning to, a lot of this is very much on an unconscious level, they choose somebody immature. So they reenact the relationship they had with their parents because they know the rules to that game. They know how it works. Or sometimes you'll see somebody with a disorganized attachment in adulthood 
effectively become the child. They might be more likely to date somebody a lot older. They might be more likely to date somebody so responsible that, you know, for the first time in their lives, they don't have to be responsible for anyone, including themselves. They can be very vulnerable to abusive relationships because they might be more likely to get together with a personality that seems very dominant. Oh, good. This person is actually going to take care of business. Wait, okay, that's a little too in charge. It's amazing how so many of the styles you can instantly see why people have problems in their romantic relationships when their early relationships are based on these things. Right. And then those are the four styles that Bowlby and Ainsworth figured out back in the 40s through their research. And then there's a fifth style that was introduced in the 70s by the marriage therapist, Dr. Mnuchin. He said that there was a mesh style. And I'm pretty sure we've all been on this date and it was creepy. (laughs) And this is the family with no boundaries at all. Everybody's in everybody else's business. There's no room for differing opinions. This family is tight to the point where it's very uncomfortable and there's no breathing space to be different or to have relationships or interests outside the family. Uh So you're not just meeting one person, you're meeting the entire family through that person. Yep. So if you're on a date, so far everything's looking good. You really like the fact that they're constantly asking your opinion about what you want. You know, you get a voice in the restaurant or the movie or the concert or whatever it is you do. But all of a sudden it changes up. Oh, I think we're going to go to this restaurant. My mom recommended it. Okay, so far not that odd. Then the movie, oh yeah, you know, my parents saw this last week and they said we should really see it. I don't want to see that movie. Just trust me. And slowly it gets to this point where everything has to be filtered through their family. You get on Reddit, you can hear horror stories of, I had a date with this great person, except his mom came along for the entire thing. Oh God. And these are adults in their 20s. Look, I'm not dating your mom. Not what I had in mind. No. Like I said, all of the attachment styles have a cultural piece where it gets interpreted a little bit differently in each culture. So you really see conflicts about this, especially in couples who are from different cultures. Mm. Your basic mainstream American looks super, super avoidant to the rest of the world. There's this very, okay, now it's time for you to go start your own family. Mm-hmm. And then there are cultures where it is completely normal to live with your parents well into your 20s and 30s, especially if you're not married, because you're helping take care of them, or that's just how they do, or you come from a small town or a small village where you can't really separate from your family. So enmeshment can be particularly interesting if you get people from very different backgrounds. There can be conflicts around that. Enmeshment is when there is, by the standards of that culture, a very, very unhealthy level of attachment that does not allow for individuality, that does not allow for boundaries, that does not allow for relationships outside the family, at least unless the family like knows everything and is completely involved in everything and you have no privacy. Because I can imagine very early on, if somebody mentions their family a lot, you could think, oh, well, that's a nice thing. They're obviously close to their family. You know, I'm looking to have a family myself one day. Perhaps that's a really good positive thing. But then I guess it just gets more and more, like you say, progressively a bit creepy. My junior prom. Well, several of us were going to go in together on a limo or rather get our parents to go in on a limo. Mm -hmm. It's tradition and it's the big blowout formal party. So it's a cultural ritual that you look forward to from childhood. I started picking out prom dresses when I was eight. I was really mad that that happened during the height of Seattle grunge fashion. (laughs) So we were all going in on this limo and one of my friends wanted to go. So she talked to her mom and her mom decided that she didn't want her daughter to go. There's a lot of other prom night traditions that parents don't really approve of. And she didn't want, you know, a bunch of teenagers alone in a limo. 
and her daughter going along, which as a parent, that is her decision to make. That absolutely was not a problem. We understood. But this mother decided that she was just going to take over the whole situation, called the limo company and canceled the limo. Kids from four other families. So that was, you know, an enmeshed level of intrusive. Mm. I can see that it's something that we develop by reacting or seeing how our families are. Can we be more prone to an attachment style from birth or is it all kind of nurture over nature? This part of it is pretty much nurture. It's very much learned, which actually is a really nice thing because if you're recognizing yourself in one of these styles, it is one of the easiest things to work with in therapy. Since it's learned, other things can be learned, especially if the attachment style isn't too strong. They don't even need therapy. Sometimes they just need to spend time with some other family and they can learn by watching, learn by role modeling, how to have the kind of attachment they want to. And you talk about recognizing yourself. Maybe some of the listeners are thinking, oh, that sounds like me or that sounds like my partner. How do we know what our attachment style is? Is it something that we can sort of self-diagnose? A lot of times, yeah. So just think of those basic patterns. Secure, you're really tight with your family, but you're also allowed to have a complete adult life outside. Avoidant, you either don't have relationships at all or more often you have relationships, but they're a little bit emotionally cold. People are constantly complaining that you don't express affection enough and you don't always see that because you're constantly doing stuff for them. The ambivalent, the anxious ambivalent style, the minute I really get into somebody, I do something start an argument, ghost them. But once I've done that, I really regret it and want them back. And then if your family is in everything to the point where it makes people very uncomfortable or intrudes on them, your family might have a little bit of enmeshment. There's very, very basic patterns to look for. And listening to that and thinking, you know, maybe you do identify with one of those styles, especially if it's one of the more problematic ones, you say it is possible to change your styles. How do you sort of do that if you do go to therapy? This is a great place to use sort of pop culture in therapy. So what TV shows do you watch where you kind of like the way the family does this? And that's an easy, unintimidating, accessible way. Pretend you're part of this family. How would they do this? How would they solve this problem? What would they do in this situation? You can practice different ways of doing things with your therapist. And then they can kind of guide you through sort of behavioral experiments out in the world in your relationships. Okay, this week between therapy sessions, what if you tried this piece of it? For somebody who's avoidant, okay, what if you just tried, you know, saying I love you? And if that's too scary, would you like to text it or email it as an initial step? Also, like I said, some people may find that they don't even need therapy for this. They just need to spend time with the kind of people that have the relationships that they like. So you've got some neighbors, you've got some friends, and you really, really like their family. Just spend some time with them, figure out what they're doing, learn from them. It's just kind of a more dramatic version of what we always do in relationships. You get into a relationship with somebody, you're going to have different ways and you're going to have to figure out how to compromise on those. This sounded reasonable enough to me. We all have to make compromises sometimes, right? Although I couldn't help thinking that not all compromises are created equal and that some are much harder than others. I was eager to find out what people struggle to meet in the middle with the most. So, as is the protocol of most scientific studies in 2021, I put out a post on social media, and here are a selection of my favourite answers. 
The sentence reads, The hardest compromise for my partner and I to make is... Finish the sentence. Carlos, whose turn it is to be in charge of the TV remote? Ah, yes, hasn't everyone had that argument at one stage or another, Carlos? Layla, whose turn it is to do the washing up? You see, this is exactly why we got a dishwasher in our house, Layla. Elizabeth, who's right in any argument? Yeah, probably best to just agree to disagree on that one, I think, Elizabeth. And Danny, the hardest compromise for my partner and I to make is... Who gets the last chocolate biscuit? You know, I'm surprised it even survives long enough to have that debate, Danny. If you eat it, then problem solved, right? Amy had made me think about the fact that in pretty much any interaction between two people, there's always a reason behind why each behaves the way they do. She had framed relationships for me as one giant treasure hunt, where if you can be curious instead of condemning, you might just find the gold in the relationship you've been searching for all along. I was interested to find out how you know if you have a secure attachment in your relationship and just how problematic an insecure attachment might be. Generally, you're looking for a partner where you two are emotionally close, you can trust, you can count on each other, you have a great time together, but they're not always around and you have things going on in your life outside of them. And that's okay. So a secure attachment is one where you're both basically pretty satisfied with how much time you have together, your life as a family or a potential family, but also having this time to do other things that are important to you. The others are considered at least a little problematic. Not everybody hates being avoidant. It's a pretty low drama way to live. So sometimes you get either two people who are avoidant and really understand each other, or somebody who just learns to appreciate the practical way that somebody with avoidant attachment style expresses affection. So sometimes you just find a way to accept the person as they are. And how do you know if your style is becoming problematic? And if so, are there any signs to look out for that maybe you do need to change it? Once you've dated a few people, you're going to get a sense of your patterns. This can be a little bit difficult because it's normal to date a lot of people before you find the one you want to have a serious relationship with. So it takes a while to notice this. Once you notice the same problem happening over and over again, I get worried about the closeness, so I find some way to be someplace else. Or my partners repeatedly tell me, you don't express enough affection. I don't feel the love you say you love, but I can't feel it. Once you notice the same problem happening again and again, then that's kind of your sign. If you do notice in your partner, you have this inkling that, oh, maybe they're this style or maybe they're that one. How do you think you should approach them about it if you do feel like it's becoming a problem in your relationship? Well, you want to approach them supportively, more than, I love you, but I do see some problems I want to talk about. <laughs> oh, that's where I've been going wrong. <laughs> Try and find a supportive place and time and way to approach them. I've got some stuff I need to talk about. And it tends to go best if you give them kind of specific things you need, instead of sort of like the vague emotional complaints, I don't feel loved. Well, what do I do with that? Try and think, what are some ways that you would really enjoy having love expressed to you? Is it about them saying, I love you more often? Is it about them just bringing small gifts or doing things for you around the house? What makes you feel loved? And how can you turn that into some things that you can ask the person for? I always feel like we have this very twisted idea in our heads that 
you shouldn't have to tell people what you need. They should just be able to work it out. And if they can't work it out, then your relationship is somehow less valid or less worthy. Do you see that as something that people tend to do? They're just not comfortable in expressing their needs because they have these unrealistic expectations. Look, I've known a couple of people who made their livings as professional psychics and they couldn't always get their relationships right. (laughs) So if they can't, chances are most of the rest of us need to do some talking. So yeah, you've got to get away from that. If this was really love, we'd have this deep telepathic connection. It does seem like there's that kind of romantic tint to everything. You're supposed to just know. (laughs) You might just know about the person, but there's always going to be problems that you have to actually talk about. Mm. Maybe kind of redefining love as being willing to have the tough conversations and stick around for them instead of running. What's your kind of success rate for attachment style issues? Do you find that you can overcome them or, you know, more often than not, it doesn't really work? For the client, it's an entire emotional journey. I know how to do this, but they're always the ones having to actually go through it. I mean, I have a pretty good success rate with it, but then, you know, like I've said before, this is often one of the things where therapy does tend to go right. So a lot of other people have really good success rates too. Oh, that's good. That's very encouraging to know. And I know another part of your work that I'm really fascinated to talk about is getting insight from early memories on a date when you first meet someone about who they are. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? I kind of invented this idea as a way to introduce the technique to my students, but then it turned out to be really good. (laughs) Way, way back in like, the 1920s and 30s, a psychiatrist, Alfred Adler, proposed the idea that by looking at our childhood memories, we can tell a little bit about how we think, how we solve problems, how we have relationships. And his idea was that we remember certain things and forget certain things for a reason. And if we remember things, it's because they're important. Even if the memory itself doesn't seem all that important, there's something about it that's telling. And modern memory research actually bears Adler out that our brain sort of prunes away memories we don't use and don't seem to access very often, like pruning a rosebush. Wow. The neural connections to memories that are important to us get much, much thicker over time. Now, memory is also very emotional. You don't remember things accurately a lot of the time you remember them with a layer of emotion changing how you see it. So for example, if you've ever been at a family party, you and a family member are remembering the same event, but a little bit differently. Chances are both of you are reporting the memory exactly the way you truly remember it, but strong emotions do color how a memory is saved in the brain. So if you look at a series of somebody's memories, you look for common themes that repeat over and over. Every woman that shows up in their memories is super nurturing well, you know what they believe about women now. Or every woman who shows up in their memories, they're constantly arguing with her. Okay, could be something to watch out for. Or beliefs about men, beliefs about people in general, beliefs about work or themselves. You look for common themes and you look for how they solve problems. In any memory where there's a problem, do they wait for somebody else to solve it? Do they take action? How successful is their action? Do they solve it intellectually? Do they tend to try and solve things physically? like with fighting. So by listening to somebody's childhood memories, you know, especially in a very spontaneous way, you can look for common themes. How do they view people? How do they solve problems? How do they have relationships? What do they see as their role in a relationship? You're talking memories and in almost every memory, they're a bit pampered by somebody. Okay, watch out for that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're really, really messed up and you should run. (laughs) You're getting a sense of what this person's strengths are and what their problems might be. 
I like how you've just solved a million family disputes just by saying it's okay. You're both right. (laughs) So how do you encourage someone to talk about these early memories when you've just met them? You know, obviously you don't really want to sort of come in as if you're probing them for information. You know, it's honestly not that difficult. I mean, a lot of people love to talk about themselves with a little encouragement. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you come from? What was that like? Exchanging information, just normal kind of light chatter like you might have on an early date. You must have been a really cute kid. What were you like back then? Or you could just be straight up open about it. I've got this kind of like early memories game that I learned. Do you want to play? I guess what occurs to me is that obviously, especially when you've only just first started dating somebody in those early stages, do you think people are prone to filter their memories to try and say things that will impress the other person rather than telling the whole truth? A little bit, but they do the same with therapists and it still works. (laughs) Nobody tells their therapist the entire truth, especially up front but you can still get some general ideas about somebody. So even if they're filtering the memories, there will be patterns. So if you're sitting there and your date has just told you various things about their early memories and their childhood, and you think, hang on, some of these don't sound very good, I can see some bad patterns here, what should you do if you think somebody's memories are showing you red flags? That depends on the red flag. Let's say that the memories themselves aren't that bad, but in every memory, your date is getting a problem solved for them. That could be a little bit of a red flag, not like necessarily like a run for the hills red flag, but be aware that there might be times when they expect stuff done for them. And that might be something you have to negotiate. So part of it is just, okay, what do I think the red flag might be? Is this a, I'm out of here? Is this, okay, I'm going to watch out for this. And with these memories, especially given the tendency to filter things, Unless it's something really intense, like they're consistently trying to solve problems with violence in the memory, that I might take a very big step back. But a lot of things are just, okay, we might need to negotiate. Keep in mind the limitations. This is a very, very low resolution snapshot of somebody emotionally. You're getting hints, not the whole picture. It would have to be something really big for this to be a, okay, get rid of this person entirely. So you've got to remain calm when you're doing this. You're not going in there all guns blazing and sort of (laughs) trying to diagnose them with something terrible. Right. Even for therapists, this is not a clear snapshot that's going to be 100% accurate and we know everything we need to know about them from this. It can be impressive, but not that impressive. (laughs) So if people want to find out more about attachment style or indeed early memories and all of the things that you've spoken about, where can we go to find out more? For attachment style, it's all over. I would try to get like a book or a podcast or YouTube video by either a counselor or somebody who's talking about like their own therapy experiences or their own personal experiences. Attachment styles get trendy and everybody wants to talk about them. (laughs) So consider your source. What kind of information do you want? There are some really good books out there. Early memories. If you wanted to explore that, you'll want to look for books on modern versions of Adler's style of therapy. People from that style of therapy tend to do a lot of parenting classes, a lot of family work. Those would be ways to learn about it. Is there something that we can learn from attachment styles about love and relationships in general? What is the one thing that you take from your study of attachment styles that we can take into our relationships? That if you're willing, everybody can learn and grow. Stuff that happened in early life, stuff that happened in your family, the process of change can be really tough. But if you find that you want to change, you can. And if they're invested enough in the relationship, partners can change for you a little bit. 
you have to do that negotiation of who's going to change how and what you can both live with. But there's very little about your relationship style that is just written in stone and you're stuck with it. Amy, you've been amazing, giving us so much fascinating information. I'm sure people will want to find out more about you and the work that you do. How can we find you online? My website is www.audeotherapy.com, A-U-D-E-O therapy. It's the Latin word for I dare, just kind of a recognition of the courage that it takes to go to therapy. It is gritty sometimes. Mm. And then on Twitter and Instagram, it's at sign Audeo Therapy. My Instagram is mostly a psychology bookstagram, which is fun. I basically live in a library that happens to have a kitchen and a bed. <laughs> oh, well, I think people are going to be really wanting to find out more. I know I do. So I'm going to be binging a lot of your <laughs> content, I think, Amy. I had a great time being here. Thank you so much, Fern. Amy had reminded me of the importance of our mindset when it comes to dealing with issues in our love lives that while not all problems can be solved, it can be worth exploring whether a change is possible to help you personally and to improve your relationships with others. As always, I want to hear from you. What part do you think attachment styles play in your romantic relationships? And can you spot any telling patterns in your own childhood memories? Leave me a comment and let me know. For now, though, you've been listening to Into You with me, Fern Lullum. Special thanks to my guest, Amy Darimus, whose links will be in the show notes. Also to Joshua Holland and Sam Robinson for technical support and to the manager of AMI, Andy Frank. Leave me your feedback at feedback at ami.ca. And if you liked what you heard, make sure to search for Into You on your favorite or indeed any podcast distributing platform and subscribe for more episodes coming your way on the first Thursday of every month. (sighs) I think I need at least a month to process this one.